is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing one of the most perfect movies ever made, The Princess Bride. In 1973, author William Goldman published The Princess Bride, an equally sweet and sarcastic nod to the classic fairy tale. Loaded with memorable dialogue and heaped with enough childhood and adult sensibility to accommodate audiences at almost any age, the novel has become a favorite for many. It's the story of a beautiful young woman named Buttercup who lives on a farm in the fictional land of Florin. She and the farm boy Wesley fall in love, but Wesley is soon slain by the dread pirate Roberts, and Buttercup herself is forced into a loveless betrothal with the evil Prince Humperdinck. But before the big day, Buttercup is kidnapped by the Sicilian mastermind Vizzini, the Spanish fencing master Inigo Montoya, and the Greenlandic wrestler Fezig. In hot pursuit is a mysterious man in black, as well as Humperdinck and his minions, which include the sinister and six-fingered Count Rudin. Will Buttercup have to marry Humperdinck? Will Inigo Montoya find the man who killed his father? Will the man in black reveal his true identity? What happens to somebody when they are only mostly dead? All these questions are more are at the heart of a story that has proven almost impossible not to enjoy. Now, perhaps because of its clever narrative structure and, and sidelong take on true love, heroism, and revenge, The Princess Bride remained one of those impossible-to-adapt Hollywood projects that had foiled cinematic legends from Francois Truffaut all the way to Robert Redford. But not Rob Reiner, who brought his adaptation of the novel to the screen in 1987. Now, filmed on a very low budget and packed with a range of talent who, at the time, might not have made a lot of sense, uh, The Princess Bride was warmly received by critics, but it was not a particularly big hit at the box office. If anything, the movie was poised to fade away into the oblivion of Hollywood also-rans, a story that meant well, but just wasn't good enough to make the cut. But that's not what happened. The Princess Bride gained a second wind on home video and television replays and swiftly became, well, well, to call it a cult classic grossly undersells just how deeply this movie has become part of our modern pop culture fabric. Just about everyone in Western civilization has either seen The Princess Bride or they know someone who has. It is quoted so constantly that it has practically recontextualized how we use the word inconceivable. But most of all, it captures the hearts and minds of viewers who see it for the first time now just as much as it did when it first came out. And you know what? It always, always will. There are very few perfect movies, but this is one of them. So let's get into it. With me this time is Iocane clinical trial specialist, Chris Crenshaw. This is true love. Do you think that happens every day? Greenland Wrestling Federation president, Tom Hespos. I kill you, Hulk Hogan. <laughs> <laughs> and Asian Land War Institute fellow, Joe Pace. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. It's going to be so good. Everybody welcome. Uh, <laughs> all right. So like, Chris, I'd like to throw it out to you first, because when we were talking before about what your moment of truth was, I thought what really speaks to you about this movie, and, and to be honest, let's just start off by saying this was kind of a tough one to come up with moments of truth for, because the whole movie is like one big seamless moment of truth. I mean, no doubt. I, there's like, I mean, to, to, to pick apart the individual components is really difficult because there are just no seams you can get in between and take a look at. But you had an interesting thing that you, you mentioned, Chris, I thought might kind of help set the tone for the conversation. So why don't, why don't you take it away? Well, uh, for, for me, my, my moment of truth is the very beginning of the movie when the frame is established and Peter Falk's character comes in. Uh, to Fred Savage's bedroom to read him a story because he's sick 
And the grandfather is reading this story and frequently appears as a narrator, even when he's not interacting with his grandson. We repeatedly get called back out of the story to these moments where Kevin, the boy, is getting stressed because the story is starting to feel real to him. And his grandfather's just so good because he, he, he draws the stress out, you know, he stretches <laughs> it and works with it and responds to his grandson with love when he could be annoyed and does it repeatedly throughout the film. And they're always among the best moments of the movie. You know, when, when you step back and are brought back in, there's real magic in that every single time it happens. And more importantly, it establishes this sweetness to the movie that I don't think I've ever seen matched on film. Mm -hmm. This movie is as pure as a movie can be. It is beautiful. It is sweet. And it's like manna from heaven, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. It takes narrative in the place like we want it to go, I guess. Yeah. It's just so satisfying. And it's been a long time, so I don't think I have to apologize for spoilers. But that moment at the very end, when Kevin says to his grandpa, you, know, you can come back and read it to me again tomorrow if you want to. And grandpa says as you wish it makes me cry every time yeah i was like i'm sorry i can't help it it gives me goosebumps as a dad yeah. we're all dads um you get it this is something like i recognized as sweet when i was a teenager this movie has only grown for me it's mm -hmm. only gotten better and that core sweetness of the whole thing is what's at the center of that the relationship between Wesley and Buttercup, you know, begins with as you wish, of course. And Bill, you posted an article in our chats before this conversation about someone suggesting that Wesley in this movie and, and as well, I, I think by extension, Peter Falk gave boys, adolescents of our age, a way to think about love and relationships. And that's pretty, it's, it's pretty interesting. And also a little bit troubling because you know doing everything that someone says is really not a great measure of love but when those characters say it yeah it is and yeah <laughs> bill I, I will never ever 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 stop being moved by this movie and and how sweet it is and and no matter how dark it gets and there are dark 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 moments in this movie mm -hmm. it's always buoyed up by this underlying foundation of love yeah and, and i don't mean courtly love it just love mm -hmm. there's a wonderful fan theory uh, that's been very durable that peter falk and then his grandson are descendants of wesley and buttercup um as you wish is a family tradition handed down from generation to generation uh -huh. and, and i love that that gives it just that extra little tincture of sweetness yeah that and what, what's so brilliant about it and you're absolutely right chris it is it is a very sweet movie and yet it, it never makes you want to spit it out right i mean there are things that we watch that are so sacrament it's like the after school special the hallmark movie you're like god get it away from me <laughs> but this does it in a way that is not too sweet it is it's it's just right 
know, who hasn't been that kid? You know, the when uh, you know Kevin is is uh, talking about you know going through the fast forwarding through the the mushy parts, so to speak. And and uh, I mean, everybody's been that kid, whether you know dad, yeah. granddad, somebody's reading you a story like, oh, just get get past that. You know, is just, this a uh, kissing book? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think you know that that adds to kind of the sweetness because I think everybody's been there. Sure. Uh, and yeah, you know, you do want to get past all the Hallmark junk and, and uh, yeah, <laughs> I think it's kind of universal. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was growing up, I had kind of this weird alpha and omega relationship with my grandfathers because my one grandfather lived in town, but he was very distant from our family. He was a good man, but he was very cold, standoffish, didn't really get, you know, young kids because he and my father didn't get along. I had almost no real meaningful relationship with them. On the other hand, my mom's father was super, super warm. And I got to know him very, very well. And I really got to have a very deep relationship with him. Uh, but he lived a bit out of town. So we didn't see him all the time. It's one of those things where I kind of wished my grandparents would swap. So the one I really was attached to was in town. We could see them you know, all the time. And when I first saw The Princess Bride, the Peter Falk character, like I at the end, especially, you know, just the way he's like, oh, yes, of course, no problem. And he's just like, he's drawing things out the way only a grandfather can because he knows he controls the pace of this thing and he knows what it's like to be the impatient kid. And like, I just love how he does those things. Like, right, chapter one, licks his thumb, flips the page, like getting his glasses on, like all these little, little rituals. It's so adorable. And I didn't just love that character. I loved that character. Like it reminded me what it meant to love my grandfather, you know? And so at the end... Yeah. Chris, you're right when he, goes, when he goes, as you wish at the end. Like, I, yeah, I choke up. I choke up. I'm choking up right now just thinking about it. I hit that scene. I remember what it was like to hug and kiss my grandfather. I remember what he smelled like when I, when I, when I hugged him. Like, it's that kind of a thing. Like, it hits that interaction between being a young kid and your grandparent and that sweet, perfect, you know, love that, that, that can only exist between a kid and a grandparent, right? There's that special thing. Wow, boy, they just, they jarred that lightning so perfectly and- Unreal. Yeah, it's unreal. It evokes such a, a deep feeling whenever I see that, Chris. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful moment. And Peter Falk was a so, so delightful oh, so in that. Perfect. It's so, so perfect. But also so was Fred Savage. Yeah. Yes. I so remember being Fred Savage and I'm like, man, you know, if I can just be half the grandpa Peter Falk was, it's okay. <laughs> the casting in this movie is so perfect. And- oh. Every single casting decision, there's no, there's no sour note amongst the cast at all. Not at all. And Peter Falk is so good. And if you had anybody, I don't care. You could have had De Niro. I don't care. Like, they wouldn't have been better than how Peter Falk did that. Mm. And when, when he gets up and he's, he's checking his, okay. All right. All right. Okay. All right. He's checking his pockets at the end. <laughs> yeah. It's and you expect him to turn around <sighs> and do his, he's going to do the Columbo. The Columbo right? One more right? thing. One more thing. Uh, you know, but, but he's just... <laughs> It's it's so perfect. It's, it's so so good. Yeah, you know, I gotta tell you, I saw this movie in the theater on my first date. Wow, that's a that's a that's an Olympic move there, uh, man. That is, and you didn't even know. I didn't even know. I've seen this movie described as the greatest date movie without the aid of Nora Ephron ever made. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Reiner can make a good date. Movie, yeah, he right? can. When Harry met Sally. When Harry met Sally was a pretty good. It, oh, that's Nora Ephron though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, so, both of them. That's uh, Ephron yeah, and Reiner. That's why that movie's yeah, so right. good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. <laughs> but, but but Chris, your first date movie was Princess Bride. 
that's a high bar to set. Pro moves. Yeah. Pro moves. Yeah. I mean, and, and, uh, like you knew it, what you were doing. Well done. It, it, it was with the valedictorian of my high school, the eventual valedictorian. We didn't like really date much. Well, we, I think we went on one more date after that, but we were friends forever and, and yeah. still are. And I don't know. It's just such a wholesome. <laughs> And that is not a word I use in a positive sense. Yeah, yeah. It is a wholesome, wholesome, beautiful film that I think is among the best movies that we've ever made as a species. It is a movie that I think is impervious to ironic deconstruction. Ha. Just because it's so earnest. Right. And that earnestness actually brings me to my moment of truth, if you don't mind us switching gears for a second. (laughs) So my moment of truth is kind of a weird one. It's uh, <laughs> it's just a moment that for me sticks out and it stuck out when I first saw it. So I didn't see this in the theater, but I saw it, I think when it first came to home video. So I'm like 18. Keep in mind, the movies that were coming out around that time that were having a big impact on me were movies like Die Hard, Aliens, Predator, RoboCop, okay? Like just all that kind of stuff. And then along comes The Princess Bride, which I saw because I was already a fan of Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap. So I knew Rob Reiner. I'm like, oh, I love that movie so much. He does a a swordplay movie. Great, I'm in. And was not prepared for what I was about to watch, right? At that point, one of the things you did was like, you're always looking for the little imperfections in a movie. Like, oh, here's where they got this wrong. Here's where they got that wrong. Because you're like the smart ass in the audience. They like, you see some blemish that made through. Somehow there's like cachet and pointing it out. You know, so this movie is chock-a-block full of them, right? Because as wonderfully written as this movie is, and as wonderfully cast as it is, and as delightful as Mark Knopfler's music is, there are clear limitations in the production value, right? Like the sets look cheap. The costumes are good, but they look made to be simple so they could easily mass produced. Oftentimes the movie looks like it's a theatrical production put before a camera rather than put on a stage and some of those sets look really seriously like deeply artificial you know you know where wesley and and inigo have their sword fight remarkable sword fight on the cheesiest rock set i mean it's really star trek set (laughs) it was like a theme park there's all these imperfections in the movie andre the giant is a objectively terrible actor okay the apocalypse cloak scene is kind of goofy in how it's carried out right but the one scene of this type that it really gets to me is the rodents of, of unusual size scene the fire swamp in yeah. the fire swamp where carrie elwes gets attacked by one of these rats which is clearly i don't think they really exist <laughs> well, <laughs> if you spend more time in new york you'd know that but the, the rat is clearly this dude walking on all fours in big rat costume and he's wrestling with them and just the costume is really kind of goofy and you're like holy moly absolutely it's so cringily bad but it's not and that's the thing is like i remember even as a wiseacre 18 year old i didn't care like i knew but the the spell this movie casts is so perfect and the sweetness is so real that it you know i didn't care about those things i'm like well yeah sure whatever just move along right if somebody were to go oh gosh that looks like don't you diss this movie like stop it no no no, not not this one this one gets a pass right and i don't care and i think as i got older the love of this movie runs so deep you just know it you know like it's muscle memory you know you don't stop to look at the movie objectively or anything but when you when you do and you're like yeah you know for me and, you know, honestly, I can, if there's a movie I like, I can apologize for it in any different way, right? Just to justify why the shortcoming is actually a strength. But, you know, for this thing, 
And I was talking to my daughter about this. She loves a movie and we just watched it again recently. And she's like, and we were talking and she's like, you know, it's almost like when you get to those parts of the movie where like the scenery is really cheesy or just the effects are really bad, it's almost like the movie's not trying to show you what a fairy tale actually looks like. It's trying to show you what a fairy tale looks like inside the head of a young child who's having it read to them. Like this is what it looks like inside of Fred Savage's mind's eye. And if that's the case, well then who are you to criticize the the rough spots in a child's imagination? How dare you back off, you know? And and it's like, that's a, that's a pretty good theory. And, and that works for me. And I've kind of come to that naturally, but there are a few movies where the limitations of the filmmakers are so evident and it matters so little. <laughs> like it just does not, it does not take not away at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not at all. It, it just doesn't take away. And so that's like, I come to that point, like this is a movie that's so good for me. It can have a scene like the rodents of unusual size scene and it doesn't bother me in the slightest. If anything, it adds to it. It does. Yep. It, it makes me feel like watching episodes like of the original Star Trek, where you know, I think, yes. okay, clearly that's a paper mache boulder. Clearly that you know, there's two guys hauling on rope. But I, I, I love, it. I love it so much that that's all part of it. Right? It's, it's almost like they know, like we know that you know it's a guy in a rat suit, but we love you so much. We want you to have this story, and we know that you're going to think it's silly, but we don't care because we love you. Now let's get moving. And it's like, it gets me back in that Peter Falk zone. Like they did. Yes. You're going to yes. love this. <laughs> you're going to love this. And I do. And it's okay. And love does magical things. And we all have, and as you mentioned earlier, we're all dads and we've all played with our kids where they're the toys on the floor and like, oh, this is, you know, here's the Optimus Prime, but he's really a mailman. And you're like, fine. Cool. It's yeah. part of the narrative. Like, let's let's roll with it. And that's and you bring the rabbit over, and the rabbit's not a rabbit. He's you know this other thing, and, and it's make believe, and it's you know it's not it's not supposed to be Shakespeare. It's supposed to be fun. Yeah, exactly. And it's okay that it's fun. Yeah, and yet it's Shakespeare. Well, yes. I know he kind of is. I mean, you know. No, it, I'm with you. I'm with you. It it's it's Romeo and Juliet with a sense of humor. It's high and low at the same time. Yeah, and it's also. It's self-aware without crossing some weird line. Like there's a, like one of my favorite moments in the movie. Again, a movie that were it not part of such a, I, I keep using the word magical, sweet, perfect. These these words keep coming up because that's all I can co go to with this movie. Um, <laughs> it's a great scene. It's it's when you know Buttercup realizes that the man in black is the really the Dread Pirate Roberts, who is really dun, 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 it's her true love, Wesley, right? And she learns it because she pushes him down this rolling hill, and he just goes as you wish. She tumbles down the hill, and she goes, "Oh my dear sweet Wesley!" and she just throws herself down the hill the same way. Like the fastest way to get down the hill is to roll like a wheel of cheese, and she's. Just, She's just like bouncing and, and rolling and tumbling down the mountaintop. And it's like the stunt work is sublime. Like, wow. The, 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 watch it's the best. It's the best. Watching the stunt people do these hard bounces down the hill. It's so funny. Like there's no faster way down a hill than to fall down the hill. <laughs> but like the movie knows this. Like they, they, they made that choice intentionally. And it's again, like it, it gets like, it never stops getting yeah. meta. Like they understand it and they actually use that to play that against us to do an intentional effect. Like that's how high the virtuosity goes in this thing. And that's Rob Reiner. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that's what he does. I'm sure the script probably was. And then she runs down the hill and they're like, wait a minute. Everybody's like, what <laughs> if she just falls down the hill after him? And they're like, perfect, do it. Let's try it. Are you up for it? You know, you're like that whole yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and you know, the, the thing I love about that, that scene so much, Bill, the, um, the falling down the hill scene is the interaction between Wesley when he's in the Dread Pirate Roberts role and Buttercup and he is just 
ragging her endlessly. She's like, oh, you love that farm boy? Yeah, uh-huh. and then you ran off to marry the prince. What a sweet, great person you are. And he is just just dragging her. And yeah. she's like, why are you on me like this? And the, the difference between Wesley as the farm boy and, then, and now there's a hardness to him that he has earned from all these years at sea and everything else. And, and even when he takes off the mask, it's not entirely gone. And so there's this sarcastic edge to uh, Wesley that Carrie always plays brilliantly. Yeah. And that is part of what makes the story work because these were these two young lovers, both of whom have been through some stuff. Mm-hmm. And they find each other again and they're not the same people, but it, it still works. And yet now they're grownups. And yeah. they've both seen some mileage. A lot and happened in those five I, years, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There were dense yeah. five years when you were away at school, right? You know, what happened? <laughs> but I, I, I love the, yes, it's a saccharine story, but there's a maturity to the characters that makes it work. Yeah. Uh, that is so evident in that scene. There's a sarcasm to Goldman's writing, because he also did this, the, the screenplay, too. He wields sarcasm like a surgeon wields a scalpel. I mean, it's just so deft, right? But using yeah. Wesley as the a very natural end for the voice of just a tiny twinge of bitterness and, and, and resentfulness, right? It opens a door for this note of sarcasm that it that when you see it elsewhere in the world, it feels it feels uh, right, and it doesn't somehow it doesn't work at odds with the very earnest kind of sense of love and all those true emotions like like the fact these things coexist in the same story is kind of amazing to me there's no you know malevolence to it at all you know i, I think that's a that's part of it you know everything comes from the heart so you know even it, it'll allow all the sarcasm in the world if you really want to take it there i mean that was really uh i i agree that that, that made just like an edge to the character made it you know a little bit more believable a lot you know a lot more funny and enjoyable uh but you know to, to make that work i think is just that's mastercraft right there I, yeah yeah oh i couldn't agree more you remember the duel scene with Inigo montoya and and wesley wesley's just smirking through the whole thing <laughs> he, he is absolutely yeah. smirking yeah and, and you're right there's no there's no malevolence there's no malice and yet we get to the end and he's lying on that bed and he gives that to the pain speech. Oh, that's very charged. I mean, yeah, that's dark. It, it is. Let's it not is forget. Dark. Let's not forget, by the way, we talked about William Goldman and how he, you know, his, brilliance. his brother is James Goldman who wrote the lion in winter. And if you've seen oh. that movie, the, that has the best that. dialogue of any movie I've ever seen ever. The repartee between Henry II and Eleanor, Eleanor of Aquitaine with Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn is hammer and tongs back and forth to people who love each other and just, just savage each other throughout the, entire, throughout the entire film. And it's just a tincture of that that he borrowed from his brother and brought to, to that scene between Carrie Elwes and, um, and, and uh, I'm sorry, between Wesley and, and Buttercup that um, the romantic dialogue that's not either soap opera mm. or it is it's real and yet at the same time it's just perfect yeah and joe nice touch i i have seen lion and winter and i did not know the connection wow. nor did i well that must have been a fun house to grow up in with those two guys right <laughs> <laughs> i love that to the pain speech though oh my god yeah <sighs> oh Oh, it's dark, you know, but like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, that, well, that <laughs> I'm sorry, Tom, I let me interrupt for just a second. My, my, the, the, the intro line I meant to use was it's possible pig. <laughs> 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 
but I just, yeah. I just, I just brain farted. <laughs> but Tom, as you're saying, no, I, I love that. I mean, th- that was going to be my moment of truth. I, I did call an audible at the last minute, which I don't like <laughs> to do, but uh, that was going to be my original moment of truth because like, it just, you know, it shows how far you could take that love, you know, and that, that, um, uh, you know, the love and the, the thing that, that just, you know, really sets the, the, the tone for this movie. You know, the guy goes out there and he gives this whole dark speech and it just shows you, you know, all right, the whole thing may be based on this notion of true love, but, you know, true love can use stall tactics too, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not above that, certainly. Uh, yeah. You know, and he talks about some really disgusting kind of things in that speech. But ears you keep, and I'll tell you why. Everything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's clearly the speech of a guy who got stuck on that rack and got it turned up to 50, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those are clearly the words of somebody who's been mostly dead for a little while. Um, he knows what he's talking yeah, about. Yeah, no that, that speech is so terrific. And when one part that always makes me laugh, you know, kind of a little bit is, is the, the thing. You know, yeah, you mentioned Joe, the ears you keep. So as you walk by, you can hear the shrieks of people as they go, my God, what the is that? The shrieks of the children. Yes. My God, what is that thing? God, <laughs> what is that thing? The way Gary always delivers it is so, it's so hilarious, you know. But, it's so perfect but, for the character, too, though, because he's, yes. he's doubling down, you know. And yeah. like, well, that's all he can do, right? <laughs> it's all he can do. But also, one thing I loved about that, there, there's actually a lot of things just narratively I love about that scene, right? I'd be curious what you guys think about the Dread Pirate Roberts thing. Because when we learn the truth about it, right? He's always like, well, you know, good night, Wesley. You know, I'll most likely kill you in the morning. And he never does. I get the feeling that, like, we learned that the Dread Pirate Roberts is a mantle. Like, it's passed down, right? But I kind of get the sense that, like, there was probably never really a truly awful Dread Pirate Roberts. Like, it's a lot of it. Right. A lot of it is, a lot of it is like that last, that last, that, that, that speech, right? They're really good at bluffing. And they have to... They, you know, they had the skills to back it up if they had to, just as Wesley does have the sword plate chops, right? But but they prefer not to, right? They would rather just, you know, not go that way. And I and PR campaign, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's, it, it's, it's good PR. But, you know, the thing is, <laughs> but apart from all that, there is a darkness to that, which I really like. But I think when you bring it back to the larger story, I adore the fact that this story, it acknowledges that, yes, like, you know, life, life is pain, right? Anybody who tells you different is selling you something. And it says those things, and they're jokes, but they're also meant to be true. But despite that, again, like, you know, it, they're not flaws, but they are inclusions, or occlusions in the world that, you know, this is a world where bad things can and do happen. And yet the ultimate result of the story is one of still a totality of sweetness and of love because these things persist despite the bad stuff that gives rise to speeches like that. Despite the fact that people do get stuck on the table and put up to 50, you know, you know, despite the fact that poor Miracle Max gets screwed out of a job, these bad things do happen but you can still have a good worldview because of it. Or I mean, I mean, you know, despite it, that's, that's important. That's something that I think is really worth, worth noting. It's Tolkien-esque in its, in its, in its version of, in its vision yeah. of evil, I think. Yeah. Well, the, it has th- th- that moment too. I mean, you're right. If we talk about overarching themes, the fact that, you know, love is real and we all deserve it and that it's worth fighting for and that we all have more strength than we think we do. Right. Cause the end of that speech is Wesley saying, Perhaps I do have the strength after all. And he stands up. And I remember the first time I saw that movie being like, oh, hot damn. It was one of those moments of just like, he's up. It's a badass moment. Humperdinck folds. Humperdinck folds. Like a chair. folds (laughs) like a cheap suit. That guy is in that chair and he he very primly, you know, like 
moves his little skirts, and he's just like, mm-hmm, "Yep, um, you you've beaten me." And, and Such he, a good know, word. To the point where he is, he's uh, he's humiliated. I knew it. I knew. Oh, I, I know. Yeah. Like, and it's something like we've talked about Monty Python before. Yeah. That's like almost like a Python-esque performance yeah. Yeah. in that moment. I, I, Don't you I, love how they're all cowards in the end? You know, like you know, and yeah. you yes. Deli- yes. There was a famous if you confront, yeah, it, it takes. You off. confront a bully with strength, even if it's feigned strength. Yeah, a bully will fail. Yeah. yeah, and that was the that was also the other thing I love about that scene so much is that narratively, it's the perfect way to kind of tie off the kind of the plot. Uh, challenges at that point because we've already seen Inigo yeah. Montoyo, you know, meet and defeat the six fingered man. He has that moment of revenge he's asked for for so long and had this great, this cool sword fight scene. You have the guy get run through. To follow that with another scene of a guy getting run through takes away from both scenes, right? This, you can't have that scene again. You need to have something different. And this is all about Wesley, you know, you know, just, just sort of tapping into something that's not just the strength of his sword it's it's about the strength of his character and and the ability the strength to, of his love and the strength yes. of his love and the ability he can yeah. see humperdinck for what he is like all those all those subtler strengths come to play and it's just a, a wonderful a wonderful moment it's it's so good his love is like a storybook story okay let's be honest. he's also smarter than everybody yeah i mean yeah that that i that that is essential to wesley's character yeah. that that you know he's he's the guy that gets it <laughs> yeah well to that point i think that's a perfect layup to Tom's moment of truth. So Tom, since so we're talking about Wesley being uh, smarter than everyone else, bring us to your moment of truth and walk us through it and, and why you love it so much. I mean, again, I, I don't like to change my moment of truth at the last minute as we're going to show, but like this week, I, I, I really just had to do it because we've had these sort of lengthy conversations about reliving moments of truth with our kids. Mm. And you know, I was... <laughs> with thomas my you know my older boy and uh you know we were watching this movie and uh he's got just you know i need to give you a little bit of background he's got this thing for riddles lately you know he's got like little books of riddles and uh you know he looks them up on his ipad and he, he tries to uh you know basically get out my wife and i to guess you know at the riddles and then uh, he's big into it lately so you know, sitting on the couch in the living room watching this movie, and you know he's he's initially not into it, and you know he, then he sees the um, you know the sword fight uh, with an ego, and he sees the man in black you know defeat uh, Andre the Giant, you know who he knows about. I, I love that he uh, recognized who Andre the Giant was uh, at you know almost ten years old. And, well, that's uh, just, that's just good parenting. I mean, let's yeah, be well, real. <laughs> Father, father of the year. Yeah, father of the year. <laughs> all right, all right. Thank you. I'll take that. Uh, so you know, and, and then we come to the scene where now he's gotta he's gotta face the boss character, you know, uh, in, in Zini, and it's a um, you know it, it's a test of, of intelligence and and wit. And uh, I, I said to I tap him on the shoulder, and he's taking a moment to kind of look down at his iPad for a second. I'm like, buddy, there, there's like a riddle coming here. You better pay attention. Oh. <laughs> So, yeah, he sets the whole thing up about, you know, the, the two goblets and, you know, the poison and blah, blah, blah. Fantastic, you know, dialogue going on there. And then, you know, the guess of like, you know, which of the goblets is poisoned and Vizzini is running through his whole thing. And Thomas is just riveted and he's watching the television because he, he <laughs> has to pick all his favorite riddles have like some little detail that he didn't notice. Yeah. So he's, <laughs> he's this thing and he's so good. I love it. 
detail. Yeah. And uh, so he goes from, um, you know, watching as, you know, Vizzini goes, oh, look over there, you know, and distracts uh, <laughs> Wesley for a second and switches the goblets. And he goes from, oh, my God, you know, Wesley just drank the poison goblet and he doesn't even know it. And then, you know, the payoff when he's at both goblets are poisoned. <laughs> he went from, oh, my God, he's going to die, too. Oh, my God, I feel so cheated by that. Like, it was so... <laughs> Trail to him, like both goblets were poison. That is yeah. so yeah. you know, like, yeah. look on his face. It was so <laughs> great to just live through that moment again. Yeah, uh, because you know, that got me when I first saw it. I, I didn't see it in the theater, I saw it on you know, home video, uh, you know, with some friends of mine. But like, I was like, oh, that's great, perfect. You know, you got me with the whole both goblets poison thing. That was that was fantastic. And then, yeah, Thomas's reaction to that. I mean, I was watching him, I wasn't watching the movie. It's of course, yeah, the change of the you know, yeah. as he realized what was going on on his face was just spectacular. <laughs> so, I had to say that was my that my moment of truth because it, it just you know, it's one of those things like you just you get to relive with your kids. And it's like, it's like double the pleasure when-, when Oh, for happens. sure. Yeah, 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 I know that there is, I mean, one of the, one of my real, real joys of being a parent is being able to introduce my kids to things that I really loved when I was their age and finding something that resent, that resonates with them and they like it as much as, as I liked it. You know, I really feel like, okay, I, we, we, we've connected, you know? Um, so yeah, so when you introduce them to a movie like this and they're into it and they're into the scene, you're like, oh, it's so good. Like it just, it just validates how much you love the thing, you know? It's, it's yeah, so I had a funny moment with my own children with this movie just recently. Actually, like last week, my, last week, my daughter, uh, Fiona decided she wanted to watch it and she was like, you know, mom, watch the movie with me and, and like, okay. And I'm in the movie, in the room, like, dad, you want to watch it? I'm like, yeah, sure. We're going to do this next week. So I'll be happy to watch it with you guys. You know, watching. And you know, we're watching, you know, it's funny because, you know, Fiona is in college and I remember like my college days were when I really deep got in this movie, right? And, you know, for a number of reasons. Uh, but it was also, like I said before, it's one of those movies where like you could actually have like a girl in the room and it's a movie that you could watch and they weren't, weren't going to be like, okay, you're kind of a little too into watching people blast each other or, you know, monsters or whatever. Like it's just a movie that you could actually have in mixed company and people are like, oh, I love it. But also, as a young, stupid romantic, it's like this movie's an easy in, right? It just, you know, it gives you, mm-hmm. gives you, you know, you know, reason to say as you wish for six hours and whatever, right? Um, and so, but so I remember, <laughs> um, and I and Chris actually, I remember like this movie was playing in in your room freshman year one time, and I walked down, you know, and it's like this is this movie that would be playing, right? And I walk in there, and they're just... Oh, just messaging you, Bill. I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah it was. Yeah, you saw this in my yeah, room a yeah, lot. Yeah, I saw in your room a lot. <laughs> and I remember we were there, as freshman year, we're a bunch of us people just hanging out, and there's this one girl who was there, and I remember I was, had a big crush on her, and um, and, there, and it's the beginning of the movie, and it's, it's the whole, you know, farm boy, you know, fetch me that picture, and, you know, and, and it's the, you know... <laughs> the, the big reveal, when they finally get Carrie, he looks up, he's got the lock of hair across his face, he's like as you wish and she's like you know and it's the big you know and, and and he's looking at her and she's looking at him and and I remember that the women in the room are like oh and i'm like taking oh. the vapors yeah they're getting the vapors i'm like you know man go to hell carrie elwis i will never compete with you okay you big jerk and i just felt so small even though i love that mike will never be as him so cut to last week we're watching this right and that scene comes up and you know, this is like this is the va- I always call it the vapor scene, right? This is when you know when you get weak in the knees, and I'm watching my daughter as the scene happens, right? As like you know, the, as you wish, and she's watching, and she goes, 
Oh man, you see his ears though? Ugh, deal breaker. I'm like, wait, what? At <laughs> the pause of the movie, I'm like, what are you talking about? And she goes, go back. And she pauses and she goes, look, look at his ears. Look at the earlobe, how they just do a right angle into his jaw. They, they're, and I'm like, those are attached earlobes, honey. That's a genetic thing. She goes, no, no, no. These ears look like they've been cut off. Those are weird. Uh-uh, deal breaker, can't do it. I'm like, he's a thief. Yeah, I was like, I was like <laughs> what am I hearing? <laughs> like, you are the first woman I've ever heard who, ever who like looked at this scene and was like, what, whatevs. And it was not not affected. I'm like, holy Moses, I, my daughter is tough. That is, that's, like, she, that, that is, that's fantastic. I mean, it just made me laugh. We all, we've all been. That is that is hilarious. We we all know the guy, right? Like, we've been watching a movie and there's the attractive woman and and there's a buddy that's like. Oh no, I don't like. I don't think she's got. You know, like I don't know. I don't like her hair. She got sharp elbows or something. Yeah, yeah and you're like, you're like, what are you seriously, dude? Like, what's wrong like with you would this? climb over hot coals to be with that woman. You know yeah, seriously. Like, shut up. You know. Yeah, but the, the earlobes were, fun. <laughs> it was, it was so funny. And, and so then earlobes. So then we okay. so then we bring down my son. Like, like oh, Connor, you got to come down here. Like, what? Because he's not in the movie so much. And I'm like, okay, just look at the scene, and and he goes, okay. He's like, and and. Before I even get to the point of going, all right, now look, do you, you know, the quite the setup is going to be, do you think Carrie Ellis has weird ears, right? <laughs> Before we even get there, we pause and Connor goes, yeah, that dude's got that rat mustache. God, that's terrible. What, what would be, <laughs> and he starts cutting on him. I'm like, okay, I guess, I guess, I guess Gen Z's given up on, on, on Wesley being a sex symbol. Oh. <laughs> Look, Gen Z is not giving up on mustaches. I yeah, assure yeah, you. No, no, they're absolutely not. I just, I just thought it was. Fine. I didn't mean to side. This is the generation that's given us man buns and rat tails and all kinds of other stuff, and they're going to get a right. mustache. Yeah, just throwing, indeed. Throwing get out of here. They're throwing such shade at him. It was, it was hilarious. But anyway, but, but, but Tom, I didn't mean to sidetrack. I just, I just. Uh... Oh no, no, no! That's, that's I yeah. love hearing stories about like when kids you know are able to kind of experience it it's funny with the contrast uh oh my god i can't yeah everyone i know uh you know like i i got talked into watching this movie by female friends you know who yeah. really wanted me to see it yeah <laughs> so yeah uh to, to hear that somebody like thinks his earlobe come on like <laughs> Like this guy's got an 18 charisma, no matter how you cut it, dude. Come on now. God's I mean, sake. God, I wish I had his eyes. And you know, yeah. I mean, I'll take any one of his features. I mean, his... yeah, pretty much. <laughs> any one, just his ears. Give me one. I, I, one I, of them. I, I heard Carrie Elwes broke his toe during shooting. I take his broken toe. It's okay. That'd be fine. Yeah. <laughs> my uh, my kids are are. Um especially my youngest son, uh, physical comedy is the funniest thing in the world to him. If somebody falls down and gets hurt. Like America's funniest tone videos from the late eighties, this kid will watch and die. Slaughter him. He just likes to watch people fall down. He likes to watch people hurt themselves. He likes to watch, you know, that kind of stuff. And so the scene between Fezzik and Wesley, that, that fight, like he is in stitches watching that. <laughs> Like I, I have a, I, I will not show wrestling to this kid because he would never watch anything else if, if I allowed oh, yeah. him to watch. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I'm not going to do that to his future prospects. Yeah. So, but that, <laughs> that scene when, when, you know, he keeps slamming Wesley against the rock and he's going, and he's trying to talk while he's, you know, getting slammed against the rock. He's just dying laughing. Yeah. The whole it time. is brilliant. That, yeah. that scene is brilliantly acted. Dream really, really of is. large women. <laughs> Sleep well. 
and dream of large women. That was my third choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know what I love about that? Whole- I'm going to sign off with that. <laughs> what I love about that whole section of the movie, like from when, for, it's when 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 Wesley goes through all three of the henchmen, right? From the moment he gets, he's, he's climbing up the cliffs of insanity to when he gets through Vizzini's, you know, you know challenge. Like all through this challenges, it's it, there's this perfect like quest kind of you know triangle, right? You know, a test of skill, test of strength, test of wits. But each one is done so so well. And the one thing I absolutely enjoy about it is that with all three, they are remarkably civil contests. I mean, like yeah, yeah. you know, like 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 that the, the dialogue between Wesley and Inigo as, as he's climbing up the you know the the the, the cliff, and he's, he's like, you know, I don't suppose you can you know hurry this up, and he's like, well, throw me a rope, and they're like, and you know, and like it's just so gentlemanly the entire thing, and it's not what you expect, and it's like it just it just goes there to go there to yeah. kind of you know impose its view of how this story is going to be and it doesn't have to be a bunch of snarling maniacs it can be people who are like intend to kill each other um or maybe not but at least they're going to be polite about it and even like Vizzini is like you know even when he does his own little like cheat move where he switches the glasses completely unnecessarily by the way because Wesley's choosing them so it doesn't matter which one he switches <laughs> uh, you know but even right. even then it's still they're not calling each other names they're just they're just you know it's like ah eh, things are thing we're going to do it and it's just it's so enjoyable to watch them do the their dialogue stuff. plays right into that i mean the, when he gets to the top and and they're talking um between wesley and uh, inigo and inigo says you seem like a decent fellow i hate to kill you and wesley says you seem like a decent fellow i hate to die and and then <laughs> and he gets to uh when he's when he's fighting with fezik and 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 fezik's like i just want you to feel like you're doing well i hate when yes, people die I embarrassed i hate it when, i didn't want you to die embarrassed <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, and, and this is what I'm saying about the movie's sweetness. It, it just keeps coming back. Like that, that is, my God, how adorable is that? Yeah. And, well, and then, and then, and 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 honestly, maybe my favorite line in the whole movie. It's not a big one. It's it's a throwaway, but it's when Fezzik and and Inigo are carting away Wesley's dead body. Uh, Fezzik says to Inigo, I, I hope we win. <laughs> yeah, right. And and it's just so earnest yeah. and sweet. Yeah. And uh well, that's yeah. William Faulkner. That's sweet. Mice and Man. I mean, it, Goldman draws so much classical into this, the illusions yeah. that you, you could go chapter and verse down it and, and pull things. I love the fact that it, it's it's setting up Montoya and Fezzik to come back as as heroes later. And clearly Vizzini wasn't because he, you know, Vizzini dies because he wasn't going to come back as a hero because he was sort of the the mastermind if you will the head of that little gang right yeah whereas the other two were just kind of hired help and they were you know revenge doesn't pay the bills and so you know Inigo is is, is working for Vizzini just to just to get some money and you know he's uh, an alcoholic he's a recovering alcoholic he's been in every wine sink from Spain to Italy and Florida to Gilder or wherever else and they clearly are going to come back and be you know, good characters whereas Vizzini is is not and so he dies and it's, it's right interesting yeah. you know, he friends both of them before he you know subdues them I, <laughs> yeah yeah how cool is that right like you never you never see that like in stories right you just you know like shows him his sword and you know hands him the sword yeah <laughs> to yeah. You know, talk about his, his father's sword and everything I mean yeah George Martin did not write this <laughs> no. <laughs> no no no, no. <laughs> God, what a, yeah no he didn't what what, what what you know if anything could have plunged me from the beauty of this whole discussion into stark dystopia it would be a world in which george martin somehow wrote this movie cool. 
<laughs> Although George R. Martin wrote, what did he write? What did he cut his teeth on in television? What did he cut his Beauty teeth on? Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. Anyway. There we have it. So, <laughs> so before we move on to the next section, Tom, I'm just kind of curious, are there any other moments in the movie that, that your kids really, really love? You know, and, and maybe not as much as this, but that really they, they were drawn in and you could see the magic of the story working on them. I, you know, I, I think Thomas first got drawn in by the eels as, you know, stupid looking as they were. I think he kind of uh, began to get concerned at that point in the, the film. Uh, Much like Kevin. Yeah. I noticed that you seem concerned. You want to make sure you know that it's all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, again, I'm watching him. I'm not really watching the movie. I just want to see his reaction to it because it's just it's so precious to see that, uh, you know, for the first time. I, you know, a lot of the jokes I think went over his head, which is perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know? fun. Uh, well, well, it means it means he'll enjoy it more when he sees it in a couple more years. Yeah, like, just, oh, wait a minute, it's, it's like level two or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> unlocked level two. Unlocked. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, it's it's like you know, it's like you said, Bill. It's like the whole thing's a moment of truth, and and it's really hard to pick. You know, uh, just one. But yeah, I mean, he 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 was pretty engaged for for most of it. So. Yeah, my kids love the uh, the duel scene in particular. It's a, it's a great scene. Yeah, it really is. It's astonishing. Super awesome. Like physically, and you know, in terms of writing. Well, once uh, Fiona was able to get past the uh, weird ears, did she have a favorite part? <laughs> <laughs> I think you know her favorite part. It was the sword fighting scene, but because you know, Inigo and and Wesley are just so good to each other like like she loved the fact that they were so they're so civil about it, it just it, it just sort of you know puts this thing in a different space you know and and she loves and, you know she yeah she loves hard-hitting action she loves you know watching star wars and she loves the avengers and you know all, she, she loves grand sweeping heroism you know but she she really adores this notion that like these guys are going to fight, but you know what? They're, they're good to each other. They're just friendly. And she just thought that was such a sweet thing and so endearing. And, and she really, she really liked that quite a lot. So, yeah. Well, look, I think it's time to move on to our, our last moment of truth. And Joe, this one of course falls to you. Uh, and if I recall, this one also deals with our friend Inigo. So uh, I'm going to hand it over to you so you can take it away. Thank you. Um, you know, the Inigo Montoya character obviously is a fan favorite among fan favorites. He's got great lines, he's got great, great style. Uh, and who doesn't love Mandy Patinkin, right? Um, He's so good. For me, the, the greatest moment of, of his narrative arc, and, and perhaps the most compelling narrative moment in the entire film, comes after he's slain Count Lugin and avenged his father. And, you know, they're getting ready to jump out the window and make good their escape. And, and Ego confides in Wesley. He says, I've been in the revenge business for so long, I, I have no idea what to do with the rest of my life. And that's, that's, it's always spoken to me in the, in the film that, you know, obsession can generate absurd amounts of energy um, and really enable you to, to do things that you never thought possible. But then when you get to the top of that mountain, it can be really difficult or even impossible to, to generate that kind of wattage for the next thing or for something else. That's why you see, you know, in sports, you'll see athletes that win a championship repeating is the hardest thing to do, mm-hmm. right? Because after you've been to that, to that mountaintop, you know, greyhounds, um, you know, in greyhound racing, they have that little mechanical rabbit that they have on a, on a uh, bar that goes around the track. And every once in a great, great while, a, a greyhound will actually catch the rabbit and that dog will never run again. Yeah. Uh, and it's just this, the sense of, the, of desire and um, obsession is such a powerful human motivator that when you then capture that, that object of your obsession, to, to gin that up for anything else, 
is not nearly um, as, as motivating. And I know we, we try to keep this self-contained and everything, but I always think back to the, the original Star Trek episode of Mock Time when Spock says, you know, having is not so pleasing a thing after all is wanting. It is not logical, but it's often true. And uh, there have been things in my own life that I have I've labored hard for. And then once getting them, you try to figure, okay, what's the next mountain? What's the next thing I'm going to climb? And honestly, like I've won and I've lost in my life at things. I have found it easier to get over a loss and get back up again the next day and get back to work than I have to put a victory behind me. Mm. Because when you, when, you, when you win, it's like, okay, we did it. And then it's like, oh, but you, you cast about, you know, what's that, what's that next thing? And in the, in the movie, Wesley says to him, oh, well, yeah, you thought about piracy. You make a wonderful dread pirate Roberts. But in Andy Patinkin's face, in Andy Montoya's face, he kind of considers it. I don't think he does it. I think he does. I think, you know, the canon is that he probably does go ahead and do it. But I don't know that that speaks to him. I, I, I just, I think that he is, you know, he spent his entire adult and pre-adult life chasing this, this man who murdered his father. It's been his animating, uh, you know, raison d'etre. And he doesn't know who he is anymore without it. And I think that's really a very mature theme for this, for this film. And I, I'm rooting for the guy to, to find out what's next in his life because there's a huge, huge hole and he has no idea how to fill it. Yeah. I thought it was a really interesting way to kind of address the line that people love to quote ad infinitum from this movie is Inigo Montoya's, you know, hello, you know, my name is Inigo Montoya. Right. You call my father, prepare to die, right? That that gets quoted probably as almost as much as inconceivable, right, from this movie. It gets gets thrown out so often, like outside of the context of this movie. It's it's become like a a shave right. and a haircut kind of thing you say when when you're trying to comically underscore just how badly you feel slighted and you're going to and you're going to go to some insane length to get back what's yours, right? You kind of drop that, people, okay, you're you're in that space, right? But but the thing is, is like, and it, it does get played so often and it's kind of like for laughs initially a little bit. And then, you know, when, when Montoya has his revenge, it's this, the way he just keeps throwing it at, at Rudin. It's so bad. Hello. Yeah. It just, it's, it just keeps coming after him. It's so badass. It's so menacing. Like this guy's not going to stop. And it's this great thing, but that line means nothing to him anymore. It's, it's gone forever. Like, well, who are you? Who are you if you're not that line? And so I love that they stopped and had this thing, but it also kind of speaks to the fact that unlike most fairy tales, it acknowledges there's a story, like after the curtain closes on the story, our characters live on. And it kind of gives us that sense that, you know, these guys will live on. And so it, it, it's just a little puncture in the whole notion of happily ever after, because if they live on, well, then nothing's ever happily ever after perfectly. There's going to be some additional heartache down the road. And so this, this movie with a line like that, it kind of has its cake and eats it too, right? It kind of gives you the happily ever after, but this notion of like, but not really, you know? Um, and I think the book actually kind of kind of does that a little bit, much more so than the movie does. Picking a moment of truth for this was brutal. I mean, it was like like when we did Ghostbusters, some of these films where the entire thing is is just <laughs> um, beloved. And I, I couldn't get my family to watch it because we watch it so much and they wouldn't watch it with me again this week. So I said, you know what, that's okay. I can close my eyes and watch it in my head. I, I know it so well. And, and it's almost like, you know, my feeling about this is, you know, let me explain. No, it's too much. Let me sum up, right? And it's just, we can, we can only pick one thing. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I think you'd be cheered to know, Joe, that I think uh, there's a video out there where Mandy Patinkin kind of explains that that scene is his favorite bit regarding Inigo Montoya as well. But he, he gets into it for different reasons. For him, you know, it's more about love over revenge, right? 
Yeah, he talks about how um, revenge is is not a good thing, and that we, you know, he, he quotes Lincoln, and, you know, do I not destroy my enemies when I make friends with them, kind of thing, and that he doesn't want revenge to be, and and he comes at it from sort of a body politic that you know we can't be motivated by revenge. It was a post nine eleven thing, like we need to find a way to be um, a nation of love rather than of revenge, uh, which is great. It's a great take. I, it's, it's it's fantastic. Uh, but to me, it speaks more about the nature of obsession and how even once it's accomplished and you've accomplished your goal, it can be very empty. Yeah. And it caught a look, you know, in his eye when, you know, he, he gets his, he finally gets his moment and like right before he just sort of stumbles off, you know, to go find his friends and figure out what, ha- you know, you, you see kind of a look on his face. And I always took that as like a look of, of recognition that like, Hey, maybe this revenge thing isn't all that it's cracked up to be before he realized, Oh, you know, Hey, I got there, you know, there's danger elsewhere too. And these, you know, companions I now have, uh, I got to go get to them quickly. And he like quickly like stumbles off as you know, bad shape as he's in. Cause he's, you know, got wounds all over, uh, you know, he quickly moves off. And, you know, it, it gave me the sense that maybe, you know, he does find a sense of purpose because now he has new companions and friends uh, that will, you know, stay with him for, for a lifetime. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As payback scenes go, there are a few more satisfying than that one, even though we've only known this, even though we've only known this character for a movie and, and we haven't actually seen the reason why he's seeking revenge. It all happens off stage. And so there, there's kind of a, it kind of violates the show don't tell rule, right? We're, we're told why he's looking for revenge, but it's played out so well that we, we go along for the ride happily, you know, Chris, you, we, we do have his scars. Like, Oh, you're right. We do it, have his scars. It, it, yes. it, it is an emblem yes. of what happened off stage. Yes, yes. And, and, and those never go away. Yeah. He gives them to count Rugen. Yep, yep. And ends it. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I agree with Joe, like, and, and Tom. I, I think ultimately he's done what he's needed to do, but it's unsatisfying. Well, what's compelling and what's satisfying are are often two different things. Yes, you know, and, and I think the scene speaks very nicely to that. And I, I think again, it's it's one of those for me. It's one of those moments where I kind of enjoyed that more on subsequent viewings. It wasn't so much on the first viewing. I think I was so caught up in the yes he, he you know you got the six-fingered man hooray and you know when you get a little older and you get a little bit of a rind on you you appreciate like you said you know, Joe, <laughs> this notion that like yeah like putting a victory behind you can be tough there's lots of baggage that comes with that and this this touches upon that it had the courage to actually acknowledge it and somehow not take the shine off the moment off the story off the sentiment um, and again, it's like it's somehow this movie manages to have it both ways. And yeah, it's just a, a testament to the, the right only masterful writing can do that. I mean, it's it's almost sorcery how well it all comes together. It really, really is. Could not agree more with that. I, I, I just think it's a perfect film. I really yeah. do. Well, before we wrap up, I've got a final thought I'd like to share with everybody. In 2019, Sony Pictures CEO Tony Vincicara noted that there were these heavyweight folks in Hollywood who were looking to remake a bunch of movies. And one of them that they mentioned possibly trying to remake was The Princess Bride. And he just sort of dropped it in this interview. It wasn't even about that. It was about some other, other thing. But people picked up on it. And the revelation was met with this surprisingly passionate and unified answer from across the internet, especially on Twitter, which is a place where strife is its own form of entertainment. 
Um, you hear that? That's the sound of infinite suffering. <laughs> but even there, <laughs> even there, the response to remaking The Princess Bride was unanimous. It was, you know, don't you dare do it. And there were a lot of responses to this. Jamie Lee Curtis, who's married to Christopher Guest, the six-fingered man, she tweeted out, oh, really? Well, I married the six-fingered man, obviously why we stayed married together for 35 years, and there's only one Princess Bride, and it's William Goldman and Rob Reiner's. Life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something, which is, which is a pretty good, pretty good response. But the best may have come from Carrie Elwes, who tweeted simply, there's a shortage of perfect movies in this world. It would be a pity to damage this one. And with that, sort of close the book on the whole discussion, <laughs> right? And yet, most recently, they kind of did. On Jeffrey Katzenberg's uh, short-form content platform, Kibbe, uh, Jason Reitman produced this homemade fan film version of The Princess Bride that was shot entirely on the phones of dozens of different Hollywood A-listers. The idea was, you know, just stay busy during the COVID-19 pandemic, but also to use this particular film project as a way to raise money for the World Central Kitchen, which has been doing some really noble work. They've been helping support restaurants, uh, which have been hit very hard by the pandemic, but by paying them to produce meals for the needy, which is a really great thing. And this movie was kind of helping to support all that. And this little, this little version of The Princess Bride, it's got a runtime of maybe three and a half minutes. But the whole thing is just this super heartfelt love letter to Rob Reiner and William Goldman's masterpiece made by movie stars so eager to be a part of it that they thought nothing of filming themselves without makeup in homemade costumes from the back of the closet using props that were flatly ridiculous. I think at one point Hugh Jackman is wearing a dim sum steamer on his head as a, as a crown as Humperdinck, but these folks are, you know, they're practicing their craft with childlike glee. And, you know, this film for good reason went viral and it prompted a media cycle about how this, and just how awesome this particular homage was, uh, but it also prompted a fresh call for writers everywhere to remind us of why we all love The Princess Bride so very, very much. You know, these are tough times um, and it's easy to look out in the world and find things that tell you how much they don't like you or how much they don't want your company. But it's really rare to find something that when you ask it to tell you a story, it says in response, as you wish. But what it really means is, I love you. You know, thank goodness we have the Princess Bride. Can you imagine a world without it? I can't. The very notion of such a thing is, well, you can guess the word. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. On behalf of myself, Chris, Tom, and Joe, be well, and we'll see you next time on Moments of Truth. Bye now. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.